You're listening to a Monster Kid Podcast. And welcome to A Dingo Ate My Movie, a podcast that features classic Ozploitation and other weird, wonderful, overlooked and underappreciated Australian films from the 70s, 80s and beyond. My name is Pete and I'm your host. So I'm joined today by James and we're going to be discussing the film Long Weekend. Hi, James. How are you, mate? I'm well. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. It's been a, been a while since I've had you on. I think we talked about it for a while and uh, just getting yeah. the time to get it all happening is, uh, is always, the, always the thing, right? It, it's always the challenge for sure. Right. And fun fact, I've probably done 10 to 15 podcasts or YouTube-style uh, YouTube, you know, you know, like podcast interview style things in the last three to four weeks. So yeah, it's sometimes it's tough, like navigating all of those as well. <laughs> Colin Eggleston helmed this psychological thriller in 1978. The film revolves around a couple on a camping excursion as a final effort to mend their marriage. Still, they find themselves in a deteriorating situation with both their surroundings and each other. It's an eerie, stimulating, and at times unsettling film that's achieved commendations for exploring topics such as the bond between humans and nature, and also, obviously, with this movie, the deterioration of human relationships. Yeah, for sure. So it stars John Hargraves and Brioni Behetz. They're pretty much the only two people in the movie. There's a few, you know, side characters, but they're pretty, they carry the whole movie right through. Screenplay was by Everett DeRoche. He's done so much of the stuff we've talked about on this podcast, like Patrick, he wrote Razorback, Road Games, Frog Dreaming. He's very prolific in uh, in this whole sort of exploitation sort of genre and, and later as well. So he's written, I think he even wrote, they remade this uh, this film a few years ago. I think it was around, was it around 2014, something like that. I can't remember exactly. And he wrote, I think he wrote the screenplay for that as well. Directed by Colin Eggleston, was released in October 1978 at the Sitges Film Festival in Spain. That was its first uh, release. I think it's Sitges, S-I-T-G-E-S. It's like a science fiction, fantasy, horror sort of film festival. I don't know if – I think it's still running from what I read. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I'm pretty mm. sure. I'm pretty – yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it won Best Film and Best Actor at the time, which was great. And it was released in Australia on the 29th of March in 1979. So it's been around for a while. I, I vaguely, very vaguely remember seeing ads for it and stuff like that, but I, I never saw it. I was certainly pretty young in 1979. Sure. How old was I in 1979? 17, maybe? So I probably could have seen it, but anyway, whatever. I watched this on an Umbrella Blu-ray, which is fantastic. It's only just been re-released recently on their Ozploitation range, and it comes, the the version I've got comes with, like, 
heaps of extras, commentaries, interviews, some new interviews as well. And it comes with like little mini lobby cards and it came with like a, a poster as well. So a really good package from Umbrella again. In Australia, it's also available on Prime and on SBS On Demand as well. So if you want to look it up, that's where you see it. Where did you watch it? It was not available anywhere streaming here. So um, I had to find it on the old YouTubes, unfortunately. And I, I did find a really good transfer of it. Which is nice, but it's unfortunate because it's not. It's I could not find it streaming anywhere because I'd rather always support films, obviously, sure. as opposed to just watching them. Um, you know, basically bootlegged is basically what it is on YouTube. Um, but yeah, it wasn't. Uh, the only option was physical media, and I, I didn't. I wasn't going to have the time to order it and have it come in. So, yeah, it is a bit of a bummer, and and you know, you among, well, obviously for you being a director yourself, you you want to support uh, sure film oh, yeah. as well, yeah. So does everyone, I think. Anyone that sort of comes on this podcast or does these sort of podcasts, I think they all support uh, yeah. Yeah. the, the it's, films. It, yeah. it's, it's amazing at certain films that haven't made it to a physical copy and aren't streaming anywhere. Mm. Um, I know I'm diverting a little bit, but uh, okay. one of my favorite movies uh, by Peter Jackson, Dead Alive, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't have a 4K release. I think it has a DVD release, and the only way you can watch it streaming in America is on YouTube. Oh, okay. Right. So like, so like, you know, like, like long weekend, you would think, I, I, I mean, I, 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 spoilers, but I enjoyed the movie and I think it definitely should be available somewhere because it, it, it has something that you, and a, a lot of movies these days don't have, you know, mm. be, besides just that seventies feel there's, there's something there that for me provokes like conversation mm. and you, you just don't see films being made like this or handled in this manner a whole lot anymore. Mm. And it's a shame that it wasn't, you know, it's a shame that I had to go to, to YouTube to find it. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a pain. And I guess this makes a kind of, you know, and I've been reading about this lately and I've been watching YouTube videos about it as well, where we're talking about, you know, kind of like physical media and, and the advantages yeah. of physical media over streaming because like streaming, see, it might have been, Long Weekend may well have been on Prime in the US last year, but it's not there now, right? So right. it's, you know, there's always that that thing where for me I like having physical media of movies I really love yep. um, but because you never know when they're going to go away from, from streaming and then you've yeah. got this other um, sort of argument or this other story where there's some of these streaming services are actually changing the movies or changing bits of the shows to make them more palatable for like today's audiences, which is kind of ruining the intention of the the show. Like for instance, the latest thing I heard was like in Disney Plus, there's episodes of The Simpsons that are gone and episodes of Family Guy that have been changed and yep. things cut in and out. And, and I think that's, I mean, there's definitely a case for, you know, being being cognizant of, you know, the way people are now and, and current sort of trends and society as it is. But I think when you kind of take things that were made at a certain time and then remove them because they don't kind of fit in today's, you know, sort of society, I think it's, it's a big loss. It is. And in some ways when you start getting into altering – an original work, it actually breaks the law. <laughs> I'm surprised some places get away with it. There were, there was a couple, I want to say clean flicks might've been one of them, but mm-hmm. um, it was a company that 
you know, they're coming at it from a religious angle and I'm not going to get into all that, but I mean, they would edit films and cut the runtime down so that it could be presentable to another audience and essentially alter it from sometimes R ratings down to like PG or G ratings. And um, I'm pretty sure it was a Supreme Court ruling that shut them down. Yeah, and it, it went on for a long time. It wasn't something that just happened for six months or a year. Uh, and it took years to, to, to stop it. But, you know, you're altering... Essentially, if you're looking at it from a business perspective, you're altering intellectual property. Yeah, it's, it's it's wild. I don't know. I think constantly with this podcast, I'm often because I'm often talking about movies made in the '70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the it was just a different time, right? And and some yeah. of the things that are said in these movies and and some of oh, the sure. terms used, you would never use these days. But it was a different time, and I think sometimes it's nice to even though. Some people might find it offensive. It's kind of like a time capsule, right, of the time. And I think if we can't look at something like that and appreciate it for what it is and say, yes, we don't talk that way now or we don't have these sort of thoughts, but at least thinking, well, society, that was society in the 70s or in the 80s or whatever. And to me, it's very closed-minded just to say, well, that's bad because they talk about things that aren't, you know, talked about now and things like that. Now, there's, I mean, there's even films from the late, mid to late '90s where I'll watch clips sometimes that make reels on Instagram, and I'm like, oh man, that was that was said, and that was 25 years ago. That yeah. wasn't that wasn't 50 or 70 years ago. It's like, oh wow, <laughs> they were still pushing that. They were still, you know, yeah. But like you said, it's it's a really good way of seeing how things were at that time and what was um, acceptable. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy to try to erase it. I'm not saying embrace it and go and run around and try to necessarily act in that manner now, but you're not saying that either. That, no. That's, that's the whole point is it's, it's a bit to show you what the history was like so that we know, Hey, it wasn't good then, but a lot of people just didn't get it. It was a different time, and I think, like I said, it's it's good. I mean, you know, for an, for an old bastard like me, it's it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of like a bit of a trip back in time, you know. Not that I'm yeah. a, a typical boomer that lives in those times, but um, I kind of like, you know, it's sometimes sometimes nice just to go back to those times and have some memories of, you know, what it was like growing up during those years. And yeah, uh, for it's, sure. It's kind of, and these movies always bring that back to me. It's quite interesting. So, so- you were a teenager in the 70s? So from- I was, yeah, I was born in 62. So yeah. I was basically 10 years old in 72. And uh, yeah, yeah. so I grew up uh, on the Brady Bunch and all that stuff. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, it, so w- watching 70s films to me, I, I love it because I, I, I was born in 80, but most of my... Um, most of my influences and most of the things that I watched even in the 90s were from the 80s because I had two older sisters. And matter of fact, my one sister is probably – she's probably pretty close to your age, actually. Okay, she, yeah. um, You know, so like I, I saw a lot of what they grew up on. That was my influence. But now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 42 and I've seen almost every bad B-80s film there is to be seen. Some yeah. still surprise me. But like recently in the last five or six years, I've tried to start digging backwards and 70s and 60s. And there's something about the film, you know, like, you know, the, the if it was on 16 or 35 or whatever format it was shot on, but the real film feel and everything about it, the, the score and the way the framing is, there's something very charming to me about 70s films. Mm, um, yeah. 
And as I dig further back, and I mean, I, not, of course, I've seen films from different time periods, but I'm talking about really digging in, you know, really digging in. It's, um, I feel like things were just really starting to hit stride in the 70s. You know, color was well underway for 10 years or so. Yeah. And, you know, I, th- I think they were figuring things out. You had all these great inventions when it comes to film. Uh, you know, late 70s, you had the Steadicam being created. It's just, you know, just, I don't know, so many really cool things that came about in the 70s that I think, you know, I think I missed out on the first time around because I wasn't a, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, well, 70s was kind of like the the era or the, the first summer blockbuster, right, which was Jaws, right? right? Yeah. Which is um, which I still remember going to the see the movie see at the movies, but anyway, it was. Um, I I just watched that for a podcast for the first time maybe three or four years oh, ago. Really? Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, JX and Ryan and yeah. Uh, co- yeah, a couple of the old crew kind of <laughs> we got on and we did something and yeah, it was the first time I had ever watched it and um, yeah, it's a, I, it's a fantastic movie. It's so good. It is. Um, sometimes it's interesting. Sometimes you get more of an appreciation for things when you're around other people who love them yeah. as opposed to if you just watch it on your own Mm. it may not seem quite as, uh, yeah, yeah, Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I always find it interesting watching people, one of my, um, I don't know if this will make in the episode but whatever, one of my little uh, things I like to do when I've got time on YouTube is I love watching people react to movies. You know how they have a lot of movie react. Some of them I think are pretty fake and there's some that are actually quite, quite genuine. Yeah. I, I always look up the ones where they're like younger people watching The Exorcist for the first time or something like that. <laughs> and that's always hilarious to me, just watching their reaction to that. Because I watched one the other day and uh, the person talking was, or the, the, you know, the person doing the th- reacting was saying, oh, it's been 45 minutes and nothing's happened because that's The Exorcist, right? The first 45 sure, well, minutes, yeah. not much happens at all. And then it just takes off, right? And uh, it was it was just hilarious watching. Well, not hilarious, but it was interesting, especially watching yeah. them kind of react to what happens afterwards. So. It is interesting watching the pacing of a movie from the seventies versus now. Yeah, and I feel like, and I know this isn't a hundred percent true, but if you watch a film like Hereditary and you take a look at it, the thing that Hereditary and Exorcist have in common is the pacing. And it's a drama with horror. It's not a straight horror film. And I feel like somehow that makes it much more effective because through the drama, you can connect to the characters. And once you're connected, everything that occurs after that is just way more impactful. You know, like if it's just a bunch of, you know, people running around camp getting killed one by one, it's fun. And I obviously I love those kinds of films. They're some of my favorites. But if you're looking about, you know, for true horror, you know, something that's horrific, you want to be able to connect to the characters first and then then you start hitting people with the you know the the scary moments and i feel like that's what the exorcist did well th- those two movies you mentioned they basically don't have any real jump scares in them right they they're, right. they're just they're just pure horror movies and to me that's more of a horror movie than than say i don't know like the nun which is just full of jump scares right right which is just yeah. like watching it's like going on an amusement park ride Whereas watching, like you're saying, Hereditary, uh, I think Midsummer is another one, you know, sure. things like that. Those sort of movies that where you kind of have the characterizations are done really well. You get to know the characters, and then, like you were saying, when things happen to them, it actually means a lot more to you. So, and some movies did that really well. I think this movie did it pretty well. I guess we should end up uh, we eventually talking talk about, about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just give you my opening thoughts, and I'll ask for yours. 
Yeah, so, no, no. So, so to me, this movie is like a real hidden gem, right? And yeah. if if you're a cinephile at all, you, this is a great movie to watch. The cinematography, uh, I think it was Vincent Morton, Monton, mm. is is amazing. It's stunning. The 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 cinematography is amazing in this film. The direction and the editing, uh, I think it's Colin Eggleston and Brian Kavanagh, is just is really good. The way it's directed, the way it's edited, is fantastic. And then the sound design, I think. You mentioned in a tweet when you were watching the movie, you're talking about the sound and the music, and uh, yeah. the soundtrack is sort of really raises the tension levels to it for my in my opinion. And then what I think makes this really exceptional is its symbolism and its deeper meaning. So the more you watch it, the more you kind of get into it, you appreciate it, you know. And so I was telling you before we started recording, and this has to do with the sound, but I, I wanted to rewatch a couple key moments from the movie because I wanted to see if I missed certain things. And I really was really, I was really interested in the opening scene because I had remembered how I experienced it. And I, I think I've actually watched the opening scene three times now. Um, and it, something I noticed this time which goes back to sound is that some of the sound design for the, I can't remember what it was called. The, the, the creature in the ocean, um, the Dungog. Yeah. The yeah, Dungog. Yes. yeah. Yeah. But, but the sound they were using for them is played almost with like within the first five to eight minutes of the film mm. before they ever make it to the ocean. And it's layered in and it's, it's probably meant to be psychological because of the underlying, uh, themes of like the, uh, the abortion, but, you know, the first time through, I just assumed that was kind of part of the soundscape. And then I guess it kind of, you know, or like part of the score more so. And then as the film goes on, it gives it like a purpose, but it also still has that subtext of haunting. It's like a haunting sound to her, you know? And I mean, rightfully so. It's it's, represent, it's representing, you know, everything she's been through and the lack of him really being very supportive because of the circumstances and um, I think I think the sound the sound design on this I think is fantastic. I think it's probably often overlooked. Um, I mean, it's easy to overlook sound design sometimes. It's working on you, but underneath underneath the surface, it's not yeah. so obvious. And it's it's doing its job, and it's doing all these little tweaks on how you perceive things. But you don't always realize it until you watch a film the second or third time, or until you start paying attention specifically for that. Same as music. If you ever watch a movie without music, it's just not the same. Yeah. And there's so many stories where, you know, they talk about making famous films that, and the first time they ran them without music, they were just like, oh, yeah, but once they added music to it and, and all the other stuff, it just, you know, changed it completely. So Yeah. So, yeah. So I think Jaws is a good example of that, actually. So Oh, it's, yeah. Yeah, for sure. It, it's it's pretty funny when they um they overdub music and or um you know different voiceovers on YouTube mm -hmm. and how different a scene can play out just like you said just with a different just changing the music out. So um, what are your initial thoughts in the film? You know, my first thought before I even like pressed play was that this was going to be a man versus nature kind of film. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually more of man versus man. Like I feel like it's like most of the things in this film that happen are in one way or another caused because of their lack of appreciation and their lack of uh, understanding of nature, even in like the simplest forms. And like, they're just overall nonchalant attitude about cutting down things or stomping down things or killing things and just going into a space that's not theirs and taking it over just for two or three days with no care. 
Do you know? Yeah, it's like that scene where I think Marsha says to Peter when he's chopping at the tree and yes. she's like, why are you chopping the tree? And he's like, I don't know, I just can sort of thing, right? Yeah. So. What have you been doing to the tree? Chopping it down. Why? Why not? Yeah, I, I think that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, to I, I have this bad tendency of not directly answering questions. So a direct answer to your question of what are my initial impressions mm. is, it's a, it's a great film. Mm. Um, it's not going to be for everyone. Mm-hmm. You have to be okay with understanding that it's from the 70s. It does have some some content that may be offensive to some, and rightfully so. I mean, the way they treat each other, but especially the way he treats her, oh yeah, it's terrible, is just horrible. I have some more to say about that later if we if we get into that a little more. It's well worth a watch uh, for so many reasons. Some that you already mentioned, you know, um, the cinematography, the sound design, the acting is really good. I wasn't expecting there to be so much confrontation between them. Yeah. I was thinking it was going to be more them as a team versus nature and. There's really no teaming up with these two. <laughs> Absolutely not. And and I think that's what makes it really interesting is you've got yeah. this this deteriorating relationship sure. juxtaposed with, like, nature coming at them. You know, I think I listened to one of the commentaries or one of the interviews and they were talking about, well, their thoughts were this is the beginning of some sort of worldwide, um, you know, problem with nature coming back at you know, at humans, but I was interesting. like, interesting. It was interesting, but I was like, eh, I much prefer it just being about them thinking it rather than thinking like as a disaster movie kind of prelude. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I think, yeah, I think just watching the deteriorate. Well, I think by the time this movie's already started, the relationship pretty deteriorated. He's he's obviously chatting up some work, you know, work friend or something at the beginning of the movie. And they don't really care much for each other. It's, right. Uh, it's pretty terrible. Like, I think the marriage is done before they even go away, really. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, yeah, so there's lots of interesting stuff. The movie's pretty pretty straight up. Like, it opens with him coming home from work on a long weekend, right? So it's the beginning of a long weekend. And he's bought himself a gun. He's got the gun. Oh, and there's that scene at the start where he comes. he eventually comes home and he's getting the gun out of the car. He decides to pull it out of the packet, out of the uh, box, and have a look at it. Mm-hmm. And Marsh is up on the balcony, to put it, doing something, hanging towels or something like that. And he's got the gun sight. He's looking through the gun sight, and he's got it trained right on her. And I'm right, like, shit. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, that that right away. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, yeah, <laughs> I'm with you 100. percent I'm like, oh, that's that's interesting. <laughs> it informs so much, but it happens before they even have a real interaction. Yeah. I think she's already been on the phone a little bit, so you already kind of have an idea how she feels about him. There's so much stuff at the start of that movie that's quite interesting. Like there's yes. the, the old, I remember my mother used to do this when you go away for the weekend. She'd get her indoor plants and she'd put them all in the bathroom. She, in the bath, you'd give them a bit of a water and you'd leave them in the bath for some reason. I don't yeah. know. Because it was cooler, I guess. Um, and then there's the little things you hear the snippets about animals doing things on the TV. There's a like a story on the news playing in the background about cockatoos um, ruining a house or something like that, which happens here, right? They get if you've got like a wooden balcony rail and you've got cockatoos in the area and they often will come and they'll land on there and they'll sit there and they'll start picking it and eventually before you know it, they've kind of like torn it all apart because they're very destructive. Right. Yeah. So there's all this stuff happening in the background when when the movie kicks off, which is really really interesting. 
So one thing that I wanted to bring up about the opening, I don't know if they did this on purpose. I think they did, but I, I can't say for sure. I think I think the writers probably did do this on purpose. They make her up front the unlikable one. Yeah. Uh, with the exception of a few things, he, he does do a few things that are kind of asinine. Oh, well, especially the gun thing. That's just uh, way over the top. Yeah. But um, they make her unlikable in the opening sequence to me. And they make him kind of like, okay, he's okay. But very quickly, it goes from her being the unlikable one to neither one of them being the likable one to him being like way over the line. Like, yeah. And, and maybe it's just that. That's more by today's standards, but the way he treats her, uh, I mean, like a third of the film on, it, it's very disrespectful, and like, there's really no reason for these two humans to be together at this point. And I mean, mm. it's understandable, you know, she cheated on him and whatnot, and got pregnant. Sure, yeah, but you know, the fact that he still treats her this way. <laughs> It's it's pretty appalling. Now it is. Yeah. My question is: Is did they set her up as unlikable in the opening aspect on purpose, so that we would come to his defense and try to relate to him more? And then when he when he shifts, we still have a little connection to him, or were they just right out the gate trying to make both these characters as unlikable as possible? That's my question. I, yeah. I I'd like to know if it was purposeful that they presented her as being unlikable first, because I'm a dog person. And when she's like, oh, just leave the dog out here all weekend by itself. I was like, oh, no, no, I don't like you. <laughs> and she puts, I think, was with it three cans three of Three cans of, yeah. <laughs> in, into his, into the, into the, uh, into right. the bowl. And he's like, oh, he'll just, she's got no understanding that. Sure. That a dog will just eat all of that. And she's like, your dog. It's not just yeah. that she says your dog, but she even like adds a little like kick to the your. Your yeah. dog. I got time for shower. You're the one that wants to get away early. Oh, well, is everything ready, is it? Nearly. Oh. Well, I thought you were going to ask Mrs. Uh, Mrs. What's-her-name to feed Krigger. I didn't feel right about asking someone we don't even know to babysit your dog. Well, I'll ask her. She's not home. I don't think Cricket's going to starve to death. There's three whole cans of dog food there. She finishes that, she can go without. She's too fat anyway. You can't just pop a pile of dog food down on the porch and expect her to... Look, why don't we take her? We'll take her. Look at the poor old bugger, you know? She knows we're going away. Why didn't you and Cricket go away and I'll stay at home and bark at the birds? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, it's um it's a terrible relationship. And and sure. I think you're right. She, at the beginning of the film, pretty much right up till you get to the till they make camp, right? That she's really annoying. She's always whining. She always wants right. to, you know, she wants she so many times she says, Why can't we just stay in a hotel and all this sort of stuff and he, you know, so they're, they're not matched well anyway. He wants to go on camp. She wants to stay in a hotel. So it, it's never going to be a great time for her. And then, like you said, a bit later, she he just goes, he's over the top with her. It's almost like he's totally fed up with her, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and he's had he, enough. They've definitely already are over at this point. I don't think he's come to terms with that. Um, she definitely seems ready to just go ahead and move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. There's so much with this. Like they make him out to be, especially there's scenes later where they make him out to be what I'd call a very stereotypical ugly Australian. So he's walking down mm. the down the beach and he's got his big bottle of beer. We call him a Darwin stubby. It's like a really big bottle of beer that's not really a bottle of beer. It's something you're supposed to drink like a can or a small bottle. He th he just throws it in. And once again, this is more of this, you know, man not 
caring about nature and that sort of thing. He throws the bottle in the water and he's shooting at it and and all that sort of stuff. And they make him really unlikable that way as right. well. But I think they're both like that. They're both just like don't really care where they are. The amount of unnecessary and I'm not I'm not anti gun. I wanna, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not. Um I don't think every well, that's a whole nother thing. But like mm. I I'm not strong one way or the other. Mm. But the amount of unnecessary shooting of things in this film is just nuts. Like he he's shooting at everything he can shoot at. I mean, like you said, he even put the sight on her at one point early on in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's such a carefree lack of understanding or appreciation of like everything i feel like you it's, know it, they try to go for that real machismo thing with him as well like he's just that yeah. really he he sort of thinks he's pretty he, he kind of thinks he's king shit himself i think and yeah and kind of has that attitude of you know i'm really great and i'm out here and i'm camping and whatnot and he just uh he does all those and he even kills like and then he just shoots a duck right for no other reason than right he does yeah it. I, yeah well, there's so there's there's I know we're jumping around a lot, but there's no, a multiple fine. there's multiple times. I mean, quite a few throughout the film where it's not just that. I mean, like even the small little scenarios. It's so it's such a blatant disregard for any kind of life. You know, yeah. I'm I, I don't want to jump into it too much. I, I was vegan for a year. I'm vegetarian now. I'll probably mm-hmm. forever be vegetarian, right? Mm-hmm. But I understand not everyone's vegetarian. But, like, why would you go around killing something without the intent of either eating or making use of it? You know, like, Native Americans, when they would hunt a buffalo, they would use every part of the buffalo yeah. to survive. And then yeah. they would, like, pay tribute to it through prayer, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm not even religious. I don't even believe in God. But the fact that there was, like, a level of appreciation <laughs> and a level of, you know, like, um, this, this, this alive being is no longer here so we can be you know yeah, yeah and this is the exact opposite of this you know like um one of the few times she did kind of step into that weird gray space she i think it was her was it her or him maybe it was him he throws the i guess it's him he throws the egg against the tree that was, was it him? her i think it was, was her, it her? okay yeah, yeah 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 okay it's just like it, it and then you know and then we lead into another animal attacking him because Fuck you! Just you just just you know you just got rid of the egg. I mean, like the way the film plays out, it's just it's crazy. Uh, there's times where you're kind of just sitting there watching it, and you don't have to be super into nature. You don't have to be super into animals, and you know, a vegetarian like me to be like, wow, like they're just being a bunch of assholes. Here. Yeah, they. they <laughs> and and I and with the egg thing as well, I think the symbolism in that is amazing. Like. Yeah. Talking about the, the pregnancy and, and yeah. terminating the pregnancy and then smashing an egg yeah. at the same time. I mean, it's pretty basic sort of symbolism, but it's great. It just works really well. attack me. Shit. Eagles don't attack people. Spear guns don't go off the safety on. It was the chook. He was probably after the chook. You can smell the thing a mile away. It was a she. She wanted her egg. You didn't even see it. 
in the name of God did you do that? It's just an egg. It's a living thing. What's the matter with you? You know what's the matter with me. You didn't have to smash it. I didn't have to have an abortion, Peter! And that's a reoccurring theme that really runs all the way through the film. It's mm. not just with this moment. That's a that's a real quick, easy way that they kind of put it into the film. But the um I'm I'm gonna say it wrong. Is it the dungle? Is that right? Did I say the that right? Dungog, I think. Dungog, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, the sound that was being made through it was supposed to be like an unborn, I guess, pup. Is that I don't know if that's the right mm. terminology, but um, you know, unborn. And again, when I was talking about the soundscape at the beginning of the film, the same sound they have that the, the baby in the Dungog's, I guess, tummy or whatever, <laughs> um, the same sound they were playing to represent the sound of the baby or the pup or wh- whatever the terminology is, that's the same exact sound they were playing at like five, six, seven minutes into the film before they ever made it to the beach. And like, yeah. just, they just re- it just kind of, they did a great job of understanding and knowing exactly everything they wanted and then layering it from the get-go to help tell the story, but to continue to like shore up the reoccurring themes. I love yeah. that. I appreciate that. All that sort of stuff just really works in this movie. It's really yeah. great. The thing I wanted to talk about as well. So we, you know, they they have this little set to at home. They decide to leave. They decide to take the dog. I've forgotten the dog's name, but cricket, ta- cricket. That's right, yeah. cricket. Yeah. yeah and, I, I actually, uh, I, I paid special attention when I went back and rewatched the. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Cricket. Cr- yeah. Cricket. That's right. <laughs> And I should know he shouted its name so many times near the end of the movie. But um, there's that whole scene where they they go off and then they stop for petrol and they is kind of having people having funny looks at them and I'm not really sure why. Well, first he asks where this particular campsite is and nobody knows. And yeah. this is where I think it shifts into a little bit of that kind of like almost supernatural sort of thing, which we kind of feel later in the movie because when they – get to the campsite, they kind of can't find it. They're like driving in circles and yeah. and they're not sure where it is and this sort of comes back at the end of the movie as well. It's it's kind of strange and, and you know, once they get there, obviously, I think, I'm just trying to remember, they uh, sleep in the car and then they find it the next morning, don't they? Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of has that supernatural bent as well. I could see how it could be what they were talking about in the commentary that it was this worldwide event, but mm-hmm. I, I think I'm with you where I I prefer that it's not necessarily, or if it is, I just don't I don't feel like it's needed. I feel like mm-hmm. okay, fine, that's fine that that's what it is for you guys, but I don't need that for this story to work. There's some part of this movie that's kind of you know super well. He shoots the hell out of the dungog on the beach, and it just keeps coming closer and closer to the camp all yeah. the time, which yeah. is really great. That whole sequence, the way every time he sees it, it's closer and closer. And it's really interesting that at the beginning of this movie, everything is really bright mm-hmm. and and very much typically that beautiful landscapes and all this sort of stuff. And as the movie goes on, it's almost like there is actually some sort of change in the way the colour, like they've printed, not printed the movie, the way the the movie's coloured, it Mm -hmm. kind of changes. It kind of gets darker and a bit flatter. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you noticed that. It's how it seems to be to me, but it's it's really interesting. And they do have a couple of moments where, you know, there's some, you sort of think, oh, maybe there's some hope for that relationship because there's that, the scene where they're kind of, you know, She's sitting on the on the sand, and he's been swimming in the water or something like that. And they have that little moment, that little lovey moment on the beach. But then that's broken up because he's kind of tries to take things further with her, and obviously she's still 
right you know has this has these issues and this is another underlying story like he obviously wants to resume having sex with her for for whatever reason I don't know because they're obviously not really going to stay together I don't think but she kind of isn't willing to and he's kind of keeps asking her when is it going to be when is it going to be right to do it sort of thing and yeah you can see from the start there's sort of some hope but then there it very much goes downhill pretty quick like it's not just his disregard or lack of caring about nature it's really everything around him because even her she i mean i you know i i don't know if it had been two weeks four weeks whatever since she'd had the abortion but she clearly wasn't ready for whatever reason physically emotionally whatever um it doesn't really matter for him he he had to know that it's not like they didn't you know like they're married i mean maybe they didn't talk about it but he had to know that and he still pursues her in that way yeah and then even if he didn't know that when she makes it clear he gets upset and takes it out on her and if i remember correctly he even like calls her a name and it's pretty disgusting. You know, I mean, like yeah. when you love someone, I mean, I don't have to tell you this, but when you love someone, you don't treat them that way. No, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I guess that it carries over in the way that he treats and disrespects nature. He was doing the same exact thing to her. So I just, I just thought of this also. What if it was a worldwide phenomenon and it was something that was going on, and what if they were affected by it also? Mm. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just throwing things out here, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, in, it's. I always think it's interesting how you can, um, sure, kind of, kind of look at a movie and kind of, you know, try and work out what it's all about, or is it about this? Like, it's there's a scene near the end, and spoiler alert: if you haven't seen this movie, don't, you know, skip this bit. But the bit at the end where. You know, he wakes up in the morning in the last day and, and sees her dead with a spear, which he's, which I think he's obviously fired because, remember, he was walking around with it the night before. And, yeah. and my, my thinking was, is is he really upset about this or is he kind of like, oh, okay, Worried. I'm kind of happy this is done now. I'm, I don't have to worry about this anymore, right? So yeah. he I, didn't – I mean, he seemed a little upset, yeah, yeah. but it wasn't – like what you would expect. Yeah, it, it was very interesting the way it was played. I'm not sure exactly what they were going for there. He was he was quite prepared just to leave her there covered up yeah. and just drive away. I think leaving it ambiguous like that actually does work for the film. Yeah. So maybe yeah. that's what they were going for was that they didn't want him to to show a bunch of emotion and a bunch of, you know, like it's it, you just don't know. You don't know yeah. if he's more concerned about being caught or, yeah. you know, even though it seemed like a mistake. <laughs> mm, yeah. And that's kind of telegraphed earlier in the film when the the spear gun just go, happens to go off on its own yeah. and, yeah, uh, for sure. and Nilly gets her then. But going back to what you were saying is how he treated her mm. and how he treats nature, Yeah, the, the scene that got me about that was when he was attacked by the, the eagle, yep. attacked him, and, you know, this is the whole time we find out where Marsha had had an abortion, then the egg gets thrown into the tree, and then... Peter kind of goes just destroying nature, like he's shooting ducks, he's throwing glass yeah. in the bottle, and he's smashing things up. And it's it's kind of like you, what you were saying. He's he's kind of treating nature the way he's treating her. Yeah, which is interesting take. I really didn't. It's interesting because I didn't. I mean, it's obviously he treated both you know nature and her 
just horribly. Mm. But I guess I didn't really make that connection until we were kind of unpacking it a little bit. And maybe it's just his utter disregard for everything. Because there is, like, you know, you were saying, there's a few ambiguous things in this movie as well. Mm -hmm. Like, why is the Dungog, which is supposed to be dead, keep making its way up the up the sand and yeah and, and that sort of stuff is that see that one is almost supernatural to me sure. rather yeah. than you know and I was like so how much of this movie is supernatural and or or do we take it that um, they're both having some sort of mental break and 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 that's what they're seeing sort of thing or, that's kind know? of the way I that that's how I kind of saw it yeah but again I think it's so. It's so ambiguous. You could take it so many different ways. I mean, it was borderline like like a nightmare in that regard, especially with that. I mean, like I guess a lot of it, but you know that those kind of moments where it just like you said keeps moving closer and closer up the beach after it's already dead, mm. um, and then doesn't he 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 shoots it again later, and then doesn't he does something else to it also? Doesn't he? Does he? I'm trying to remember. I like think he, he just keeps shooting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like after it's clearly dead. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of what it might mean, but there's almost some sort of symbolism, I think, to this dungle mm. as well. Um, yeah. Just trying to get my head around what it might be. Maybe also the fact that it keeps coming after them and it was pregnant, it could also kind of represent that, you know, he and her haven't really dealt with her infidelity and then her pregnancy and then yeah. the abortion. It could be kind of a symbol, symbolistic of that, a symbolism of that, in that it keeps following them around because they haven't dealt with it. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or maybe just the they just decided to put it in the movie because it's spooky, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> so, it, it could be something so simple as that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's lots of like interesting bits in this movie, and like you know that the, the time at camp and you're just watching their their whole relationship from that moment where they're sort of almost having sex on the beach, right? It, it just all their relationship just goes totally downhill from there. And I think you're right. I think. They never really talked about the abortion and about the affair. I, I don't think there's been much right. conversation. Or he was so pissed off about it that he just won't talk about it sort of thing. He just yeah. has made up his mind it's done. Or, or he's trying to just forget about it and repress it and and right. whatnot. It's, um, and I feel like that's a very, I don't want to say typical by today's standards, but it's definitely much more normal I don't know if normal, common. It's much more common for men to take that approach than women, I feel like, to like repress yeah. or get angry over it or to to just not address the situation and just think it's going to go away. Oh, yeah. But it's, it was even worse, I feel like, in this time period because there was yeah. less less awareness and less openness about men being able to, you know, have feelings and cry and talk through things and be vulnerable, you know. Oh, yeah. In, in, in the 70s, it was definitely a time of, you know, Men were men, and yeah. that was it, right? And yeah. if you had a, I don't think it was even probably till the nineties that that men started talking about you know their issues or or starting to think about or we'd start hearing in the media or hearing just in society about men should be opening up more and right. talking about things. Whereas in the seventies, and I, I guess in a bit of the eighties, you had that whole thing where. Men just kept everything, and this is why I guess suicide rates amongst men are so high, right? In the real world, yeah, is is they don't talk about these things because you just find that when you talk about these sort of things, it it's never as bad as it feels like 
if you just keep it inside because it's yeah. bigger and bigger. Yeah. Now we're going off on mental health tangent, but anyway. No, but but the thing that the thing that's really wild about this film is that it really does. That's why I like this film so much. If it would have just ended up being a man versus nature film, mm. it would have been more throwaway. Maybe yeah. entertaining, maybe not. And you know, but like. That's what I love, and that's where I think this film really excels, is that they have all these underlying themes, and there's some that are much more front and center, and there's some that are way underneath that I think can be unpacked and discussed. Um, yeah. You know, I, we, we've talked about it quite a bit, but the abortion and those themes and the inf- infidelity, of course, are the big themes that kind of run throughout it. Mm-hmm. Um, the lack of respect, but even that, like even the – even him not being able to express himself properly and so becoming so angry and so like lashing out at her and everything yeah. around him. The other thing I wanted to talk about is the the other campers on the beach. He wants to go and find out who they are, etc. And then there's a scene near the end of the movie where they decide as they're gonna leave, they're also gonna go and check out this this van, which is suddenly in the ocean. Yeah, and and has a child in it, a dead child, and then he goes up to the Peter goes up to the camp at the same time, and finds the dog in there. And the other thing that this movie does really well is, and the whole nature thing, these people have obviously only been there a short time, but their camp is already overgrown with mm. with trees and and foliage and all sorts of stuff, and there's the dog in the in the uh, in the tent which is kind of aggressive as well. Yeah. And and I don't really know what to make of this scene. There's the and then later on in the scene we have Marsha out of their car walking towards the ocean. He comes back and stops her just in time. And I was like, was she going to walk into the ocean to have a look at the van or was she walking in the ocean to commit suicide? See, that was or, my take. That, that, that was, was my yeah. take as well. My other take was was it somehow, was the ocean kind of like calling her and she was in some sort of, because she looked like she was in some sort of trance, right? Yeah, no, for sure, yeah. And I, I just kind of thought that it was her ready to end everything after, you know, like I, I feel like we, we've kind of touched on it, but like the psychological and all these little things, the reoccurring sounds and, you know, her dealing with, you know, the, the egg and from the, you know, from the eagle's nest and just, just everything that them continually butting heads and him just being so disrespectful to her. Yeah. It's just all starting to boil over. And I feel like as the movie gets to that point, we're almost at the end, of course, mm. all these things have been ramped up, of course, because that's, yeah. that's how, that's how pacing in a movie is going to work typically. But, mm. um, I think she's at like her breaking point. That was totally the way I took it was that she, she was going to end, she was going to commit suicide for sure. Yeah. yeah. I think so too. It's, and, and it's funny because when he comes down to her after everything he's done to her, in the last 24, 48 hours or whatever's passed in the film, there is like that still that little, little bit of obviously he doesn't want a fellow human being to kill themselves, but you can still see that little skerrick of of care for her and he yeah. doesn't, you know, he sort of feels that. And she's totally, like you said, I think she's totally gone by this stage and, yeah. and she's ready to just, you know, give up. When they can't get away, obviously... That's the biggest issue, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, you know, it's also, it's interesting because, like, there's so many times I feel like 
they would have been fine if they just wouldn't have went over this one more line, you know? Mm. Um, he insisted that they go and check out this other camp, even though things have, the weekend was disaster. Yeah. They've went through a bunch of stuff, you know? And, but he insists that they go and do this. You know, they didn't have to go. I mean, like they were leaving. They didn't have to go and look at this other camp. They've already had a lot of weird things kind of go down, you know? Yeah. yeah. I feel like in every turn, he's making the worst possible decision. He is. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not in that, like, oh, I'm being chased by a, by a slasher. It's not, it doesn't come off that way when you're watching it, which is really mm. interesting. He just, he, he's very unlikable and it does come off that way, but it doesn't come off as he's being an idiot. It just comes off as him being like not knowing any better or just being rude or just a horrible human, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm glad that they could pull that off. I'm not sure how exactly they did that, but you know how you're watching a slasher film and everyone's, oh, let's, let's, you know, let's go, let's split up, you know, yeah, <laughs> let's that, do that the one. dumbest thing possible. That trope. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 But I feel like, you know, that's so easy to spot. But in this case, when he does the dumbest thing possible, like it's there and you're aware of it, but it's not quite in your face, even though. You're like, man, I think I'd just go home and take a nice hot bath at this point. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I would have thought like even the middle of the first day they were yeah. there, that would have been the time to go. Yeah. I'm not – so I, I'm not a super outdoorsy person. I just started seeing someone who has inspired me to be way more outdoorsy, but I'm still never going to be that guy that – I'm not a person that goes camping very often. I don't like bugs. Yeah. And, you know, like I, I, I've definitely come to appreciate hikes and adventures and things of that nature, especially with the, the person I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't have taken a whole lot for me to be like, yeah, let's go. I might've been her in this story. I'd have totally been her. I'm going to be honest with you. I'd have been the one wanting to go to the hotel right off the get go. <laughs> oh yeah. I'd be, well, to be honest, I'm kind of the same. If I'm going to go camping, <laughs> I'll go glamping, which is basically, yeah. you know, camping that's done really nicely almost yeah yeah no yeah i'm okay with that i i almost need these days like a mattress uh i don't think my back can take a whole lot of like (laughs) on the ground kind of sleeping (laughs) yeah 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 like you said he makes lots of bad decisions but they're not they're not tropey sort of bad decisions as well that's the thing right yeah they're just bad decisions in the context of this film and 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 there was things like i just thought if they just kept driving along the beach in a beach somewhere, but I guess this is supposed to be totally out of the way. On most beaches on the coast of Australia, eventually in a lot of places you're going to find a parking area or something like that. And I guess this one's kind of out of the way. Um, and it's a beautiful beach, by the way. They, If uh, people in Australia or in New South Wales, it was filmed down in Tarthra, which is down towards Bega uh, mm. on the south coast of, of New South Wales, probably – from here, it's probably about three and a half, four hours away. And, yeah, it's just beautiful along there. But, you know, you, you kind of – I guess you have to suspend your belief a little bit in, in the fact that they can't find their way out, right? Right, right. So, I mean, they did at least give us a really good idea as far as – like when they – even when they arrived, it's not like they just pulled right up and they were there, you know? Like the, I think you yeah. kind of touched on that a little bit. It was at nighttime and they were lost and they, they ended up sleeping in the, the Jeep – the first yep. night and then they realize, oh we're here actually it was just it wasn't daytime and we didn't see that we were here yeah. so I, I am glad that they set that up as opposed to them not being able to get out of there and then um you know and then it just being very random and not set up 
You know, yeah, um, yeah. they did lay the groundwork for that. Mm-hmm. And they did. And then there's a scene a bit later on after the whole car in the water. And how do you reckon the car got there? Like, do, do you think the people at this camp had the same sort of experience they had? But where are the, the two parents that would have been obviously with this little girl? Um, it, or, it's very or interesting. Team? I had not considered what you had mentioned earlier on. So it yeah. kind of makes me, it, it, I kind of need to put a little more, I almost want to rewatch it now. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, like I, I hadn't taken it from that perspective, but now I, I was very confused initially by mm. why that camp was abandoned and why the van was in the ocean. And, you know, like I, I, I didn't understand all that. I thought it kind of um, played up to more of the psychological bits. Yeah. That's a lot of a lot of what was happening in the film. I just figured was them losing their minds, essentially, from the pressure and the stress and the just the constant at each other. Especially the last third of the film. Yeah, I think that's where it's all like just it all just starts to come home, you know. Mm. And then they go back to their camp for some re- reason. I can't remember exactly why. It's when Marsha takes off in the Jeep, right? She figures yeah. out because what he has, he has some reserve fuel tank or reserve battery. Yeah. And she doesn't know about it. He kind of keeps it secret from her. And so she can't start the car, but eventually she finds out about it because I think she drops another symbolic thing. She drops her wedding ring mm. down into the console, the center console of the, the Jeep, and she opens it up and that's where she finds the switch, the yeah. switch for the, um, the power. So... The bit where she goes off in the van is quite great too, like when she's driving through the bush and there's for some reason there's birds crashing into the car and right. and uh, and no matter where she goes, she can't find a way. And she's like at this point, she's totally lost it. And I think he's totally lost it as well, right? Because he's like she goes off without him and then he's stuck there. He sets up like a camp at the same time. Yeah. It's just amazing. And obviously there's that period where... Once again, spoiler alert, you should see the movie before listening to this anyway. We've um, spoiled the hell out of this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's that whole bit where obviously he sets up camp and he's sitting there petrified and hanging onto the spear gun for dear life and there's that noise which sounds to me like a crying animal or something but it's obviously her coming back into the, founding her way back into the camp. Yeah. and And that's when... He kills her. We don't know that at the time, but we see the aftermath when we get up, when the morning, you know, comes eventually. Yeah, so there's that whole weird thing where she goes off and then he goes off in the van. He can't find his way out and he locks Cricket in the car. Yeah. I'm like, what, what happens to Cricket? I, I, so. <laughs> I was going to ask you that, yeah. Well, on one part, I'm relieved that one of the only protagonists that I cared about in the film survives, hmm. <laughs> Cricket. <laughs> yeah, I'd like I'd like to think he found his way out of the out of the car somehow. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, given how it ends, I'm sure the authorities are called and they're going to try to track things down. But then again, if it's you know, if it's everything in nature is kind of losing itself, lo- losing its mind, and kind of just attacking, maybe not. Yeah. Um, yeah. But th- then I guess that also doesn't. See, now I'm going down a rabbit hole. Then I don't know if that actually works because Cricket never seemed like he, Cricket didn't always listen, but he's a dog. Dogs don't always listen. Sure. Like I didn't, I never saw Cricket as being aggressive towards them, you know? No, he, he seemed to be not. This is what makes me think it's not some yeah. worldwide thing where animals suddenly rise up against people. But like I said, I don't really like that 
that idea. I just like the idea of this being compartmentalized into this one area and there's one thing happening. Yeah. But yeah, I was I was like, oh no, he's locked in the car. And then I was like, okay, I'll just think he got out and somehow because he was an animal, he wasn't going to get harassed by all the other animals and he'll be fine somewhere. So it's really interesting how Peter almost escapes, right? Yeah. Like he he actually eventually finds his way yeah, out. He kind of does. Kind of. He does, <laughs> yeah, kind of. And then he waves down a truck. And at the exact same time that the truck's coming down the road, a bird flies into the cabin of the truck. So once again, we've got the nature yep. side of things. And, of course, Peter's run down by the truck. And it's rather gory to a degree. Apparently there was extra stuff shot, but they decided not to put it in okay. the film. It was interesting that he wasn't really just killed by a truck, but he was killed by a truck carrying animals. So I thought that was very interesting as well. Yeah. He uh, almost got away, but not quite. I wasn't sure where it was going. I didn't know if he was going to get away, but like, I feel like that, I mean, there was a little bit of setup for it, but like, I still wasn't quite ready for it when it happened. (laughs) Yeah, it was a bit of a shock. I think without sounding really nasty, they probably both deserve to die in a way. It was so hard to care about their characters. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's such a weird movie because like, you want, you usually have, in a movie, you have one protagonist that you kind of like yeah. or attach yourself to. But in this movie, both of them are so unlikable yeah. that you don't like it. You, you side with cricket most yeah. of the time, yeah. right? Or, or you're starting to side with nature. Yeah, for so sure. It's, it's really interesting. And I guess I guess that's one of the great things about this film is you don't have a, a protagonist that you actually, you know, like yeah and yet you still uh, for me i still was very interested in seeing where it went which is hard i think it's really difficult to tell a story and have a protagonist or multiple protagonist where you just you don't you almost don't care about them but you still especially a movie like this where it's not fun slashery we're here for the fun kills kind of way it's more serious and heavy toned i mean you definitely i I was definitely rooting for nature (laughs) Yeah, I think by the end I was Yeah, too. for sure, good. for sure. Um, I don't know. I, I think ultimately the movie just wasn't exactly what I was expecting. And I mean that in a very positive mm-hmm. way. It was yeah. more. It, it was more, you know. It wasn't just, uh, you know, human versus nature, you know, where animals attack kind of situation, which is kind of what I thought it was going to be. Um, yeah. And I think on rewatches, I'll probably notice a lot more. And I'm definitely going to keep an eye and watch out for the whole, is this just the beginning of some sort of weird thing where he, everything's breaking down and people are going against each other? Cause I mean, at the end, the guy seemed also very, um, you know, the truck driver seemed very, he, I mean, they didn't show you a lot. It kind of ends, but he seemed very upset or intrigued by, Oh, I just hit someone. <laughs> like he wasn't just like, he didn't yeah. just keep still trucking down the road. It wasn't, you know, it was an accident for sure. Like you said, the bird hit, so it wasn't like he was aiming for the guy. It wasn't like there was any kind of like ill intent um, from his perspective. So I don't know. I do like that we're here now talking about it and like trying to, you know, like I love films that do that, that yeah. you watch them. You can even watch them a couple times and we could both come away from the film with different, different ideas of what was really going on. And we can talk about it and kind of dig through some of it, you know? And for being a movie that's so old yeah. too, old as in, you know, it was, what, 78, so that's, what, nearly almost 50 years ago. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So 
So it's um it's amazing to think it's almost fifty years old. Yeah, and you know, so you you had sent me a list of films uh, that were options for us to talk about, and um, mm-hmm. I'm gonna give a plug out to someone I've been listening to for a very long time, uh, Dave Becker, who has been on the Horror Podcast and Land of the Creeps, and they've been really good to me over there. They've done a lot to help like promote my my projects and stuff, also. Um, mm-hmm. and I know they're not part of the monster kid family, but, uh, Dave Becker, I, I, he's a huge, he, he's like reviewed like 5,000 something plus movies on his website and stuff. And so I was in the middle of talking to him when I was talking to you and I was like, you know, I know he'll have seen at most of these movies that you'd sent me. So I was like, Hey Dave, I'm just curious, which one should I go for? I want to, you know, what, what do you think we should talk about? Like, what's your recommendation? And there was not even a pause. Like, I swear he was almost like reading my mind before I sent the message. Cause like it was immediate that he responded with this film. <laughs> Long weekend. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's classic. Yeah. yeah. It's a bit of a classic. And I think the other movie I suggested was thirst. Was it? I thirst? think so. I'd have to go back and look. But yeah. yeah. I think so. Which is kind of like a modern day vampire. Yeah. Film, which is kind of fun too. It's a pretty fun movie. First is completely different. Our conversation would have been completely different because it's more of a, a vampire movie with a company that make, that's, or that, you know, takes blood from people so they can, so vampires can feed and stuff huh. like that. It's kind of a, it's a weird kind of movie, but it's kind of more just a fun ride rather than, you know, we're not going to be talking about much in the way of, what what this means or the meaning of this right. and the meaning of subtext. That. It's more straight. Yeah, there's no real subtext. Right. It's just it's just a fun movie. Long weekend would have been a pretty obvious one for most yeah. people. Yeah. I think I think a lot of people who are into film have seen this film. So it interestingly, it did really well outside of Australia, but in Australia it was very poorly received. I had read that. I, I wonder why that is. do you think that I mean, obviously, I, I don't have any context. I'm not Australian. I've actually never been to Australia. Do you feel like, as someone who's obviously native, do, do you feel like that it might feel like um, the two protagonists are just being depicted horribly and that that wasn't something that like made people feel good about? It could be that. It could be like the fact that, you know, he has habits, you know, like some of the things he was doing are kind of like, I, you know, I mentioned before, like an ugly Australian. Right. And and I think also people didn't like looking at that and thinking, well, there's some of us are kind of like that. Not everybody, of yeah. course, but there are some people like that. And this is a bit of a trope in Australia. There was probably the nature thing where they're probably thinking, you know, um, it, it's not really nature's not like that in Australia, et cetera, et cetera. But but it didn't do very well at all here. So, it, but it does. It's done better since. Like it's become much more kind of, you know, accepted and, and you know, appreciated. You know the then. moment in Back to the Future when he just gets done jamming out and he's like, you're not ready for this, but your kids are going to yeah. love it. Your kids are going <laughs> to love it, yeah, yeah. I feel like maybe to an extent that audiences weren't ready for some of what was being explored in this film possibly – but like, but like you said, also like it did. From what I had read, uh, did pretty okay in other, you know, in, in other parts yeah, of the world. So I, I don't know. When it hit the screens, it just didn't resonate with an audience here. Maybe Australians didn't want to see themselves portrayed like that, as an ugly couple that's greedy and destructive. Lots of elements of nature fighting back seemed a little bit preposterous to an Australian audience. 
The landscape's very familiar. It doesn't look menacing. To an overseas audience, it was really exotic. And it is a very well-acted film. It's a very well-put-together film. One of the things, one of my, I'm just looking at my last bit of notes here, and and I was thinking this this film would make an amazing 4K. Oh yeah, film. yeah. The tran- the the umbrella transfer is really good. They've actually cleaned it up a lot, and it looks great. But in 4K, I think it would look amazing, especially a lot of the nature scenes and stuff like that. Yeah, I think the cinematography would. Yeah, and you know, I'm sure there's a really nice print of it out there um, that could be cleaned up. I'm, I'm, I would I would guarantee that. Interesting. I um got a just a bit off off uh, off things. I got an email the other day from someone that's enjoying the show, a fellow that's enjoying the show. He works. He has a business where he scans and restores a lot of Australian oh. films, and uh, and he's lately he's done things like Patrick and Turkey Shoot and Sky Pirates, all sort of movies I'd have on my show. So it was very interesting. He was saying. Uh, he listens to the podcast when he's scanning and dust busting. <laughs> so, I like that. But yeah, so I, I replied to him and just said, sounds like a very interesting job. I imagine it would be an interesting job. I imagine it would be also quite tedious at times as well. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I was going to say, it's probably just one of those very extremely time consuming and tedious uh, uh, things. But like, and when you're done with it, it's like such a rewarding process, you know? Well, it's a bit like filmmaking, right? Or po- or creating podcast or creating anything. I think so. Right? Yeah, it it always it yeah. always uh, amazes me. Um, you know the way we consume things now, especially now, versus the amount of time and effort it takes to create something. And there's like this weird middle ground where a lot of people don't understand what it takes to create something. And some people who do create things create them so quickly, like when it's like TikToks or Snapchat, you know, not Snapchat, mm-hmm. um, um, Instagram, like Reels or Facebook yeah. Reels. And it's just something really quick that they can produce, you know, in a matter of 10 or 15, 20 minutes sometimes. I know not all those yeah. are that way, but and then you mm. jump into something like a podcast, which, you know, you have to watch the movie. You have to take notes on the movie. Sometimes rewatch the movie. Then you have to record the mm-hmm. podcast. Then you have to edit the podcast. Then you have to upload the podcast. You know, uh, a one hour recording, you know, depending on what, how much time you want to put into it could take 10 hours, you know? <laughs> I don't need to be telling people this, but you pretty much got to scrub through first time just to clean it up. And uh, and then you just want to fine tune it, yeah. but yeah, it's um it's a lot. Well, you know all about that. I'm about to ask you about that in a minute. <laughs> but um, so do you have any uh, any final thoughts on this movie? If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. You know, be prepared. I mean, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. It's not the most um, it's not the most offensive thing I've ever seen. But you know, keep in mind the era it's from, uh, especially when it comes down to the way that they react to each other, especially the way he treats her. Um, it's yeah. appalling. I mean, it's it's pretty disgusting at times, you know. And but it's I think it is worth a watch, and I think it's going to be worth a rewatch also. Uh, so I'd say if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Um, I, again, I want to go back and rewatch it because I feel like there's things that you brought up, especially from like the commentary. Now I want to watch it from a slightly different perspective and see how I feel about those things. It's it's a good film, and I think it really rewatching it is actually quite rewarding. With this film, anyway. Some films are like one and done, right? You watch it once. Right. And- you can move on but for this one i think you can come back to it you can find you know other things and then like you said you're going to start thinking about you know other bits of the movie that like you're like well what does this actually mean sort of things and 
or what was the director trying to say or what was the writer trying to say i always work it on a a buy rent or stream or nothing but for me if like if you've got if you're able to get hold of the blu-ray especially the umbrella blu-ray then uh definitely uh i would go for it it's well worth it for sure yeah i i want to start building up my uh physical collection again but uh i i would definitely buy this on blu-ray and it would be nice to have in the collection for sure yeah umbrella ship all their stuff to to the u.s okay they're they're an interesting company like they're they've been around in australia for a long time but probably the last three to five years have really kicked it up a notch and uh They've got some great collections. They've got some really good sort of genre movies. They've got some really great sort of like foreign films, things like that. In Australia, they're actually starting to uh, distribute movies more. Like in Australia, they were like the company pretty much that uh, managed the screenings of Terrifier 2 and and are releasing it themselves. And they're also involved in that new Winnie the Pooh thing. Yeah, Blood and Honey. looks hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're definitely uh, getting, you know, a lot more involved. And I think as we go forward, you're going to see less media in your shops. Like, you know, in Australia, it's JB Hi-Fi. I don't know what it is in the US. Is it Walmart or where you'd normally buy physical media? And I think more of it's leaning towards like these boutique labels yeah. that are, are releasing stuff and special editions and doing kind of just rather than, you know, like a major movie house will just sort of send the movie out and most of the time it's, a movie, maybe a commentary if you're lucky, and maybe if they've got any special features, some special features. But with these boutique companies, you get like the movie, you'll get a lot of special features, you'll get packaging, you'll get little inserts, you'll get all sorts of little bits and pieces. And and uh, it's really, you know, I think where it's where it's heading. So it's great. So uh, as we go out, so just get an idea of uh, what are you working on at the moment? Yeah, uh, I feel it's a lot. <laughs> um, so our second film is in um, post-production. It's, um, you know, it, it, it could end up being a little bit before it's completely done, but uh, it's called Absolution. It's a revenge thriller kind of in vein of um, Blue Ruin uh, with a little touch of uh, Death Wish thrown in there. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's a revenge thriller. And um, so the film we're currently in pre-production on and running an Indiegogo, which will should be in demand, assuming we make our goal here. <laughs> um, but um, it's called Triple Xmas, and it's a it's a very fun, uh, interesting hybrid of uh, genres. It's it's really a slasher film. Uh, it's about uh, so you know it's a little out there, but it's a uh, Santa Claus has a mental breakdown, and he ends up targeting uh, porn stars on a holiday themed shoot. And uh, it has buckets and buckets of blood, which I'm super excited about. Sounds like heaps of fun. Yeah, yeah, it's it's going to be fun, but it's also there's also some uh, social commentary in there. But I'm very, it's such a it's such a very difficult road to walk because I think that you can very quickly put things in people's faces too much, and I think keeping it as subtext and keeping it there in that way is the best way to approach things. Um, I'm naturally a very sarcastic human being, uh, which doesn't necessarily, didn't necessarily come across on this podcast, but I'm definitely a very sarcastic person. So my humor tends to lean towards dark and sarcastic. And, uh, the first draft, I wrote a lot of that into it. Some of the people listening, I'm sure are familiar with Louis Otero. Uh, he is a phenomenal writer and he's my collaborator and co-writer on our first film. And then on this film, 
And uh, he did a second pass. He's currently looking it over and doing a third pass. And, you know, the things that I introduced in the first draft, he has just drastically improved upon. And he's he's such a great writer and, and just a good dude, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's great. I've had him, I've yeah. had him on a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so, you know, he uh, – so, yeah, we're working on Triple Xmas now. And it's expected to shoot at the end of March with a release of December of 2023. Um, that one I can be a little more sure about dates on because, uh, the Indiegogo kind of dictates and locks us in pretty firmly with regards to deliverables and when we have to have things ready for people. And it also is 99%, hundred percent, uh, practical effects. So uh, on the back end, there's less visual effects that need to be done so that, that makes, um, post-production a quicker turnaround. <laughs> Absolution requires a lot, a lot of visual effects. There's a lot of gunfire. There's some explosions that go off, and there's just a lot on an indie level that it takes a lot of time to to pull that off. So it's it's possible that Triple Xmas may come out before Absolution, but uh, regardless, I think people are going to be thrown off when they see one movie and then they go and watch the other one, and they're like, "Wait, this was from the same person?" <laughs> yeah. Well, then there's your first film, which you can right. Yeah, you can currently stream Fontaine and the Vengeful Nun Who Wouldn't Die. It's um, you know, it's it's a very niche film, but it's um, it's fun and it pays tribute to '70s exploitation films. Um, very yeah, much. yeah. Uh, you know, even some kung fu films, but uh, typically like nunsploitation, Nazi exploitation. Uh, I don't know if I. So the title's Fontaine and the Vengeful Nun Who Wouldn't Die. It's streaming on Amazon and Tubi. It's um, on the, a couple Roku channels. So if you have Roku, you should be able to pull it up. Uh, it's also on Troma now. So Troma's streaming it. And then you could go to monsterkidfilms.com if you want to pick up a Blu-ray. Um, you know, we every penny that goes towards the, the physical media comes to us. There, there is no middleman. You know, we, we bought them up front out of our own pockets. So we have a large surplus of Blu-rays. So if someone's interested in buying one, you know, go to the site, order it, and it'll be shipped out. This is just like being in a band. We were yeah. the same when I was in the last original <laughs> band. You'd, you'd buy all the yeah. CDs and you'd have them all and you just try and sell yeah. them, right? It's, so. it's, a, it's a wild ride too. Like indie film is incredibly expensive and incredibly difficult and Absolutely. there's a thousand ways to approach it. And when you're first setting out, you know, you may not take the right step and every film may have a different path forward. I feel like absolution for us is going to be drastically different in the way we approach it. Uh, we're probably going to look at doing some festival runs with it and triple Xmas isn't, okay. you know, and, and it's not that I wouldn't, mm. it's just that the time frame won't allow it. And in general, I'm not a huge fan of film festivals. Um, it's mm. very expensive, very, very expensive. Do you find that being an independent filmmaker is kind of, not easier, but do you find having, you know, outlets like Tubi and those sort of places make it a little bit more, I guess, accessible for people to see these sort of it, films? It definitely does. I there, there's so, I, I could probably talk about Tubi and um, online distribution for a while, so I'm going to try to keep it. I love Tubi. I'm gonna try, yeah, so do I. So I'm going to try to keep it very short. Um, Tubi does. There's some benefits to it and some negatives. Uh, Tubi is currently... As far as if someone doesn't want to pay to rent the movie, they are the best paying platform for independent filmmakers. And even okay. with that said, and this is a very important point to make, even with that said, the most you're going to typically make from a full stream of your film is about eight to ten pennies. In comparison, places like Amazon, if you don't rent the movie, you're, the filmmaker's probably getting one penny if you watch it all the way through. 
Um, okay, it's a bit like Spotify for musicians. Oh, Spotify yeah. is even worse. I think it's like a fraction of a yeah, it yeah, is. It's, it's it's horrible. Zero point yeah. twenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of people who aren't in you know the business of music or producing a producer or you know a filmmaker. They don't have any clue. I didn't know how little Spotify played until I heard someone breaking down the numbers one day. And it's a fraction of a penny. And then that's split between okay. the musician and the producers and the people that own the rights to the the writing if they didn't write it themselves and the band members. Yeah. And it's like you're getting a fraction of a fraction of a penny. Congratulations. You, your song was listened to 10,000 times and you're, you, you, have, you have enough to go buy a bag of chips out of a vending machine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's quite amazing. And – you know, it, I guess most or it was when I was in the smart folk, it was just another way of getting our music out. It was yeah. never, you know, it was never like, oh, we're going to make money from, from Spotify because, yeah. like, it's impossible unless you're, you know, somebody that's getting, you know, if you're a Taylor Swift or something like that that's having millions and millions of streams a day, then that's doable. But for an independent musician and independent bands, it's the same sort of thing yeah. really. You just... You're getting it out there, and I, I'm assuming it's kind of like another reason why you'd put a film on Tubi is to just get it out. Yeah, right? it, to get it plus out you are making money on it as opposed to I mean, well, yeah. even it's it's so wild because even now, um, even YouTube, you can make money off of films being on channels. Mm. You probably wouldn't want to put it on your own channel. You'd want to put it on a channel that was very specific to a genre. And then very specific to, um, you know, the fact that they may have 500,000 subscribers or a million and then they they get ad revenue and then they pass it down to the filmmaker. I have heard filmmakers doing that. I I think now the approach to take and no, not really that different than a band probably is that, um, you know, you go to YouTube or you you put your movies on Tubi, Amazon, whatever. And the idea is to create a brand and then get people excited about the brand and then people buy your merchandise or your films. And that's, you know, that that's the, that that's the best way to support someone. I feel like is find out if they, you know, if they, especially if they make their own merchandise, then the overhead is so low for them outside of the original investment, which is usually big. Um, But then like, Mm. you know, making more and selling them, that's the best way for them to make money and direct income right away. You know? Yeah. yeah, It's, it's crazy. The amount that is invested in the tools and the time and um, yeah, the amount of effort is just, it's, 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 it's pretty wild. Um, Yeah. It is. It's crazy. It's the same with music, right? We used to, and I make it a point myself. Like if I really like, a band that I'm listening to, if I come up on Spotify, you might discover weekly or something like that, and it's an independent band or a smaller band, I'll generally go looking for it on Bandcamp. And if I can, you know, yeah. buy their album on Bandcamp or something like that, because it's never that that expensive. It's might be ten or twenty dollars, yeah. but the money's going directly to the artist. I know Bandcamp take a a small amount just to run the site, etc. But they often have this thing called Bandcamp Fridays where anything you buy on there goes directly to the artist, which is great. So they really support independent music. And, you know, I think like you, you're kind of alluding to, I guess, that places like Tubi, etc., kind of support independent filmmaking as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Which is great because I don't know a lot of independent movies are, are going to be seen, you know, on places like Netflix right. and things right. like that. Like the big independent yeah. ones that aren't really independent maybe. And, and, but, and even you know. then, it's interesting because even if so, – so say I say my next film was on Netflix, right? It's not going to be, mm-hmm. but say it was. Um, yeah. It doesn't ensure anything because 
Think about how big the first screen is when you go to Netflix, right? There's maybe 15 or 20 films that pop up as being recommended. And half of those are ones you've already started and are shows that you've already started watching. So maybe there's like 10 or 15 slots, you know, if your movie makes one of those top slots, that's amazing. It probably won't. And if mm. it does, uh, mm. it's not going to be there very long. So you still have to take your own money and put it into marketing. I've actually heard instances of filmmakers making it onto Netflix, getting not as much money as what people would think, maybe 10 grand for their film. Mm-hmm. And then what they did yeah. with that money was they went straight to Facebook and threw it into Facebook ads so that someone would watch the film. <laughs> okay. I mean, like, and that's, that's really what it takes. Like um, you take a look at these big films and I know it's a different dynamic, but it's also not that different. You take a look at like Marvel's Avengers films where the movie costs 200, $250 million. Then if you look at the back end, how much they put into budget budgeting for marketing, it's usually another 200, 250 million for marketing. You know, same thing for something like Avatar. So in general, if you are in any way, shape or form marketing a film, you're going to want 50% of what you spent on the film to market it. And if you don't have that, there are ways about you can go about marketing it, but you better be really good or you better be prepared to take some heavy losses. And, you know, I'm not really good at marketing. I'm learning. I'm getting better. I'm getting I'm so much better than I was a year ago. But, you know, it's. It's one of those things you just learn as you go and you find new strategies. And that's the other thing that's really interesting is that with social media and with filmmaking and with distribution with film, it changes so rapidly. You know, five years ago, Amazon would have been the number one place to have your film as far as paying independent filmmakers. Now it's almost not even worth it. You know, it's I mean, it's nice to it's a prestige thing now. It's not even a prestige thing, but it appears to be a prestige thing. You, you someone finds out you're on Amazon. Oh, OK, well, you know, then people think of your film differently or think of you differently. Um, but yeah. to me, my end goal was always to be with Fontaine. And I'm just glad that mm-hmm. I, th- my, my end goal was, you know, to have a premiere and a drive in, which we did. And to be on a streaming service that was accessible to people for no cost to them other than the commercials they watch. And they actually to be great with commercials. You never get no you get nowhere near as many commercials as you get on normal TV. You're absolutely correct. I'm, yeah. I'm lucky if I watch a movie, an average movie on Tubi, I might have maybe three commercial breaks or four, mm-hmm. maybe. And I never see more than maybe the first break might have four mm-hmm. ads, but then the other ones they're lucky if they have two yeah. ads. Yeah. They're pretty. They're pretty good. It's not that much that you kind of, you know, in commercial TV, the ads come on. You got time to go and make a cup of coffee and go to the toilet, right? right? Yeah. And with these guys, it's it's really not that intrusive. And I find I love Tubi. I talk about it. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I I also I love their selection. Um, yeah. I do fear that five years from now, Tubi will go the same way Amazon did. Um, and that doesn't scare me that there won't be a platform for independent filmmakers. I think there will be a new one that comes along. I just think that being very flexible is the way to proceed with that. As far as, you know, like don't, don't, don't think this is going to be the way it will be 30 years from now. Cause it probably won't. No, it's amazing to be, I mean, you can watch everything from, or what I was looking at the other day on the main screen, you can watch everything from the Revenant, which is mm. a great movie down to Titanic 2. <laughs> Right, right, so, yeah. So, 
Or as some other podcast friends of mine just did for a, a podcast, Titanic 666, I think it's called, or something like that. <laughs> you, know what's in, you know what's on there? I don't know if Sunny listens to, uh, to the show, but Sunny from Twitter, uh, she <laughs> she's a Monster Kid family. She, um, she just watched all 53 Amityville movies and... <laughs> Oh wow! Are they all on Tubi? That's what I was gonna say. Is like a lot of them are on Tubi, I'm sure. And wow, you know, um, that that's what made me think of it was that you were talking about like Titanic six six six, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, well, yeah, I bet yeah. I bet like at least thirty of the Amityville movies are on Tubi. <laughs> so, um, where can people find you on? Socials? Yeah, yeah, I don't spend as much time on there now, but um, you could definitely reach mm-hmm. me on Twitter at James D seven thousand four. I'm, you know, I'm on Facebook at James Dean. That might be a little more difficult to track down. Um, and then I'm on Instagram, but I'll have to look it up real quick. Sorry. It's, um, I just changed it not too long ago. Monster underscore kid underscore productions on Instagram. And cool. a lot of that is film related. There's some personal stuff I post. Um, yeah. but yeah, that way you can kind of keep up with anything going on and, uh, monsterkidfilms.com has our emails. They can reach out if they have any questions. I was going to say, if people want to uh, help you out with your next movie, where can they Yeah, go? so xxx-mas.com. We have our Indiegogo going. Uh, by the time this airs, the campaign will probably be over, but it will go into in-demand, which means people can still make contributions and pick up perks. We have everything from right. T-shirts and Blu-rays to VHSs, and you can come on as a producer. You know, um, it, it's it's crazy. The amount of people that have already come on were around twenty two thousand dollars raised already. Our goal is thirty, and uh, we have seven days left. So I, I think I feel pretty confident we're going to reach that. It's been a ride. Uh, I don't know if you even. I don't know if you knew. Um, we attached Felissa Rose. Uh, as, I yeah. saw that. So That's amazing. That's I, fantastic. And I've talked to her a couple times, and I have to tell you, everything I've ever heard about her is that she's just the sweetest human being. And a couple of the people that are working with me on this film have worked with her before, and they said it. I've read nothing but great things. My interactions with her, one of the most incredibly bubbly and sweetest human beings ever, and just like – it's she's the kind of person that makes you want to be a better person. And I don't think there's a better yeah. compliment you could give anyone than that. Uh, she's so incredibly sweet and she may be ruining me for any other uh, names that I attach at a later time with those kind of expectations. But uh, I, I'm so incredibly pumped to be working with her. She's just an incredible person. How did, how did that come about? Uh, so we, so initially when I wrote the part, I actually wrote it in mind for two people. Two different people potentially because I didn't want to like limit myself. And the two people that I I reached out to both of them, you know, full disclosure, um, and she was one of them. Uh, she was the one person that I, I you know, because I kind of thought I had a way of, of getting in touch with her, but I didn't want to like push my luck. And um, so I reached out to her and I reached out to Darcy from The Last Drive-In. And uh, Darcy's schedule, it just didn't seem like it was going to work. And um, and Felissa's schedule did work. And when I wrote the part, I literally wrote it for either of them in mind. And so the, the part is uh, Lena Luscious. It's a retired porn star who is now producing porn. And, um, okay. you know, like I thought. I thought both of them would be equally amazing in that role and just bring something slightly different, but I was really super excited about it. It, Depending on like if we reach our stretch goals or if if I can attach some outside financing and then timing and scheduling, we may have one more announcement with regards to an actor. um, But that's kind of really up in the air right now. And it kind of just depends on funding really. 
awesome. It's really good catching up with you. I'm going to have to, uh, I think on the um, description of this pod, of this episode, I'm just going to put, we talk about uh, Long Weekend and then we talk about movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, whenever you talk to me, it's going to happen. I apologize. <laughs> but no, no, it's totally fine. I, I mean, to me, it's kind of like, I, I actually don't mind adding that sort yeah. of stuff to a podcast because like it, it just, it obviously widens people that might yeah. listen to it. But, but also it's just, you know, it's just interesting. And, and I already knew before you came on that I was going to ask sure. you questions because I thought it's it's great to get a perspective from somebody that makes yeah. film and to find out what you're doing, et cetera, and it, it's really cool. It's been really yeah, cool. yeah. No, I, I appreciate coming on. I um, I love talking films. And so we, um, we do have a, a podcast. We've kind of been on a hiatus uh, because – you know, my co-host and I both are filmmakers and we've both been just swamped. Uh, so Chris has actually been editing the, um, he's been cutting the promo material for M night Shyamalan's new film, uh, which is pretty exciting, but he also just shot his first narrative film and he's releasing his fourth documentary. But anyway, we, we interview and we talk to filmmakers and, uh, it's called the film hacks. You can find us on Twitter at hacks underscore film and we usually talk to micro budget filmmakers. And the one thing that we've definitely fallen into, but I very much appreciate it is it's not very much interview oriented. It's much more conversational in that sometimes, and we, we try not to do this obviously, but sometimes I'll ask Chris a question when we have a guest on because he's a filmmaker and I want to hear how he feels about it also. And I feel like it kind of makes people feel a little more comfortable and they open up a little bit more when you're just having a conversation as opposed to, I'm going to ask you 20 questions and it's going to be very robotic and I'll ask and you'll answer. I don't, I don't like that, you know? <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really great having you on. and I appreciate it, Pete. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Me too. We'll have to do it again sometime. Again. Sure, definitely. All right. Thanks very much, James. And we'll be back after this short break to talk about what's coming up next. And now, preview time. When it comes to entertainment... You can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. Stone is a trip. And when you're on a bike, I mean a big bike, you've got all power, man. Grave diggers are on the move. A new breed of motorbike gang. That's why we're here, man, together. Because when you're out there right, man, with the grave diggers, what can stop us, man? What can stop us? We own the world. They live in a fortress by the sea. Vietnam veterans. With their own style of life. Their own rules. Their own religion. Look at me when I spike the They don't seem to make a lot of friends. But now, somebody wants them dead. All of them. So the cops 
sent stone. It's a pig. Yeah, that's right, I'm a cop. I've been sent to find out who's been killing your mates. Why would you want to know that? That's the way I earn my living. The whole reason we're outlaws is because we're against pigs. And everything a pig is. So how are we gonna do our thing with you pigging around? Stone is different. Take the trip. In our next episode, I'm joined by Matthew from the Weird Crap in Australia podcast to talk about Sandy Harbutt's stone from 1974. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Thank you to all my guests who give their time to make this podcast possible and a special thanks to you for listening. Don't forget you can follow A Dingo Ate My Movie on social media. We're a Dingo Movie on Twitter, Dingo Movie Pod on Facebook and Instagram, and we're on the web at dingomoviepod.com. If you'd like to support the show, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or share the show with your friends. Of course, you can always buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com slash dingomoviepod. Once again, thanks for listening, stay safe, and I'll see you on the next episode of A Dingo Ate My Movie.